Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. This week we're coming into the book of Exodus. And so it's the book of Shemot, book of names. I feel like the message today is, who will you be? Who will you be? And so we're going to take some time to talk about that and look into it. But I guess the first thing we should do is give a little overview of what this portion, what, what happens in this portion. So we enter in with the, with the mentioning of the names of the children of Jacob that came down into Egypt. And then Joseph and his brothers pass away. It's not long after that that Pharaoh begins to enslave the children of Israel. Then Moses is born. He's raised in Pharaoh's house. And he at one point comes up and, and kills an Egyptian and has to flee to Midian. From there, God encounters him, and he is called to come back to be a deliverer for his brothers. So he's sent back, and initially the, the children of Israel receive him, but then Pharaoh rejects him, and the burdens on the children of Israel are increased. So that's the portion in a nutshell, but there's so much that takes place. One thing I wanted to start out talking about is a little recap of something we discussed last week, just to help us put uh, time frame in perspective. We talked about uh, Galatians 3 and how, um, and how Paul had noted that the, the Torah, the law, came 430 years after the promise that was given to Abraham. And so, and, and in his discussion in Galatians 3, he was saying that the Torah, the covenant at Sinai, did not do away with the promise given to Abraham and the faith of Abraham. And he says 430 years were between the promise and the giving of the Torah. Now, often there's a confusion about how many years the children of Israel were in slavery because Exodus 12.42 says very explicitly that the children of Israel were in Egypt for 400 years. But they weren't in the land for 400 years when we look at the timeline in further detail and include Paul's statement of 430 years from the time of the promise until the Exodus. Now, when I'm saying that, okay, so I was thinking about how I would actually come about saying things of that nature. How can I say that the scriptures say one thing, but they didn't really mean it, okay? <laughs> because I believe that the word is true, and I do not believe that any of it is false. What we have to do is we have to put the whole picture into context and say, what is, what is God trying to communicate? Because there's times when God uses certain words in the Torah not because he's trying to be explicit and exact, but because he's trying to tell you a story or even to connect various stories. Now, that can be really difficult for Western mind people, for people who think in, in black and white or want to be like every word has to be perfectly literal, right? So that, that can be a challenge. But God often 
tells stories out of chronological order and uses words that wouldn't otherwise be used in certain circumstances in order to connect two stories, the purpose being to give greater revelation through the combination of these stories and connections he's making within his story, right? And so for us, it's like these are hidden treasures for us to go and to seek out and to learn. And I know we, we talk about those from various times uh, as we go through the whole Torah portion cycle. Um, but the statement of the children of Israel being in Egypt for 400 years was a statement of them being strangers in a land not their own for 400 years. If every year I show this graphic, and it's, one day it's going to look even better. That's the promise I make every year. But, you know, time is not done yet. I still have time. So within this graphic, it gives a picture of the timeline of the exile, exile in Egypt. So there's 430 years between the covenant between the parts where the promise was given to Abraham and when the Torah was given at Sinai. Okay, according to tradition, the covenant between the parts occurred when Abraham was 70 years old. You will not find that in the scripture. In Genesis 12, when Abraham is 75, God says, go to a land I will show you. And then in Genesis 15, three chapters later, there's the covenant between the parts. So which came first? Well, according to tradition, Genesis 15 came five years before Genesis 12. Now you could say, well, I don't really buy that because I don't listen to tradition. I just want to listen to the Bible. Well, now you have a conflict because Paul affirms the tradition in Galatians and says that it's 430 years from the promise until the Exodus. So there were 30 years between the promise until Abraham's offspring was born, who is Isaac. And then it was, that began the 400-year countdown of Abraham's offspring being strangers in a land not their own. Okay, so using the Bible timelines of ages and births and so forth, what we, arrive, what we come to is that there were 210 years from the time that Jacob arrived in Egypt until the Exodus. Okay, and so this, you have a vertical line in here saying arrival in Egypt because Jacob lived 17 years there. Um, Joseph uh, lived until the age of 110 his brothers lived even longer. And then when we begin to read here in Exodus, we see that it was after, all of, after Joseph and all his brothers had passed away that a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph and began to enslave the children of Israel. <clears throat> and so what we end up running into is from the time that Joseph died until Moses was born, was 59 years. From the time that all of Joseph's brothers had died until Moses was born was 36 years. So it's not a long gap from the time that a Pharaoh would have known of Joseph and all that Joseph did until the time that the outcry of the children of Israel had reached God's ears and he had said, I'm going to send forth a savior. And he brought forth Moses. There's a couple things to draw from this, right? There's 
One is that God hears the cry of his people. He's not slow about his promise. But then there's also the, the picture of how quickly things can change when there are corrupt rulers in place who are uh, operating according to their own fears and their own desires and not according to God's standard of morality. So, so we have 36 years that could have been a time of slavery, but likely didn't start right away after the death of the brothers until Moses is born. Okay, so Moses is born. Many of us know the story in that he, he was hidden for three months until his mother could no longer hide him. And then she took him and placed him into a basket and placed him into the Nile where he was then later found by Pharaoh's daughter and taken into Pharaoh's house, being raised by Pharaoh's own daughter, which is a fascinating, well, it's, it's a fascinating uh, aspect, really, of part of the story of deliverance and miracles that God performs. So I want to take a look at it here. This is in Exodus 2. So Jochebed took Moses and placed him in a basket in the water and then set it among the reeds at the bank of the river. And in verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe by the river and her maidens walked along the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and she sent her maidservant and she took it. She opened it and saw him, the boy, and beheld a youth was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. His sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and summon for you a wet nurse from the Hebrew women who will nurse the boy for you? And the daughter of Pharaoh said, Go. The girl went and summoned the boy's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this boy and nurse him for me, and I will give you your pay. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. The boy grew up, and she brought him to the daughter of Pharaoh, and he was a son to her. She called his name Moses, as she said, for I drew him from the water. Now within this story, within the traditional telling of it, there's a, there's a midrash that speaks of how Pharaoh's daughter took hold of the basket. Here in the scripture, we see the plain and simple meaning of the passage is that Pharaoh or that Pharaoh's daughter, Batya, sent her maidservant to go get it for her, and her maidservant went and brought it to her. You know, if we were to look at what the plain and simple part of the text is, that's what happened. But the sages look at this and say, well, I think there's something deeper to draw from what's taking place. And in the scripture, it says that she sent her ama to get the basket for her. Well, ama can be maidservant, but it can also be arm. So the sages say that Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket and she stretched out her arm and it was miraculously lengthened to where it was able to take hold of the basket and bring the, the basket to her. And it sounds outrageous, right? Because do we really think that Pharaoh's daughter's arm just miraculously got super duper long to go grab this basket and bring it? And it's not that the sages were trying to say that's what literally happened, but what they were pointing to is that the, the very fact that Pharaoh's daughter 
would take hold of this basket that has a Hebrew child that is, has been commanded by her father to be killed and will take this child, have mercy upon it, bring it into her household and raise it as her own son. They said that's as big a miracle as her arm lengthening to go and take hold of this for her. So that's the reason that that story was told, is that it was really a miracle that Pharaoh's daughter would be willing to do that. Now, Pharaoh's daughter's name is Batya. And I often wonder if that was really her given name or if it's the name that God honored her with in writing her into his story. Because Batya means the daughter of God. Now, is it possible that she could have had that name? Possibly because the one true God had been identified to the, the people of Egypt through Joseph and his family. But the Pharaoh we're speaking of is a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. So what's the likelihood that he cared at all about who the one true God was so that he would give his daughter that name? I don't know the answer. But I tend to think that it was God saying, I'm honoring this person because of the transformation that took place in her. She was raised in an Egyptian household to a father who was murderous, cruel, yeah, evil. But yet she did not live according to his standard. She lived according to the mercy and love of the one true God. So her upbringing would have said, this is who she's going to be. She's going to be a daughter of Pharaoh, and she's going to know how to rule ruthlessly, and she's going to live according to pagan ways. But it wasn't about her upbringing. It was who she would be. Who was she going to become? And I think God tore down walls that stood in her way where everything said, no, you can't do that. Can you imagine the counsel she would have received from her friends and attendants? You can't bring the Hebrew boy into your household. He's under a curse. He's supposed to die. What's going to happen to you when you disobey your father? But she didn't listen. She acted according to a greater calling. And God brought forth a deliverer through her. And she is memorialized here in the scripture for us to remember her righteousness. So, so we have her bringing Moses up as her own son. And when we continue in Exodus 2, 11 through 14, the scripture says, It happened in those days that Moses grew up and went out to his brethren and observed their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brethren. He turned this way and that and saw there was no man. So he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the next day and behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. He said to the wicked one, Why would you strike your fellow? And he replied, Who appointed you as a dignitary, a ruler and a judge over us? Do you propose to murder me as you murdered the Egyptian? 
Moses was frightened, and he thought, Indeed, the matter is known. Pharaoh heard about this matter and sought to kill Moses. So Moses fled from before Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat by a well. Okay, so Moses grew up, went out to observe his brothers. And in verse 11, it stated that he was observing his brothers, and it states it twice, recognizing that Moses knew that they were his brothers, and he was beginning to think and act as a brother toward them. And, you know, the question, one of the questions that I have is, with Moses knowing that he was a Hebrew child, seeing that his brothers are afflicted, being in a position of power and one who could influence how they're treated and affected, to what degree did he know at a young age that his calling was to be a deliverer, a burden lifter for his people? And I tend to think that he knew within himself that that was his call and that he was beginning to walk in that to the best of how he knew how to do it. Uh, within, the, within the traditional stories of what took place with Moses during this time, it was said that he would see an, une, an, uh, an unjust burden on one person. Like, say, for example, a heavy load was placed on a weak person or a light load was pay, placed on a strong person. And he would go and he would help to redistribute it. Or he would see a load for a man on a woman and a load for a woman on a man. And he would go and he would set things right in order to relieve burdens and make it easier upon the people. And that he would intercede for, their, for how they were treated. And God saw his heart and his compassion and how he would set aside his responsibilities and go out in order to make the burdens easier on others. And God said, from this I see that you are one who can shepherd my people. You're one who will see one's burdens and turn aside and go and take action so that I, I know that I can reveal myself to you and give you what you need to go and be the ultimate burden lifter, right? So Moses had to go through a process in his life of becoming who God was calling him to be. We see this over and over in the scriptures. It's not a one-off thing. Whether it's the great men of faith that we read about in the Bible or whether it's us, there is a process by which we go through change and transformation. Who we were is not who we are, and who we are is not who we will be. Right? We're on a path of transformation and progression. So too was Moses. So Moses begins to act. And it doesn't turn out the way he thought it was going to turn out, right? He thought, okay, I can, I can take care of this Egyptian. I can hide him, and I'll go on, and I'm going to go try to make peace with these two of my brothers who are fighting. And he's not well-received in that instance. And he becomes aware that his life is in danger, and he has to flee out to Midian. And it's in this place in exile in Midian where Moses 
has an encounter with the Lord. And so if we go and look at Exodus 2, 23, so I'm starting just a couple of verses before his encounter. Because of the context. During those, day, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. So while Moses was in Midian, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up from God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You know, there's one aspect whereby we know that Moses was a humble man. And in this statement, there's the aspect of humility of, well, who am I to go and do this great thing? But at the same time, there can very much be a statement of, who am I? I'm just a shepherd out in the midst of the wilderness. I no longer hold a place of position and stature. I'm no longer among my brothers. How are they going to know me, receive me? And how do I influence Pharaoh from a place of being exiled and banished? So there's many doubts that could be in Moses' mind at this time. But God does not see those as disqualifying things by any measure. So if we continue reading God's response to who am I that I should go is answered in the next verse, Exodus 3 Starting in verse 12, he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then, okay, so in that first phrase is what makes all the difference in the world. 
God said, I will be with you. That makes you the one who can go and do what I'm calling you to do. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay, so I'm going to pause here because when, when God said, I will be with you, he said, imacha. Okay, I will be with you. And then right here, he says, what shall I tell the people of Israel when I come to them? How, what is your name? And he said, asher It's translated here, I am who I am, because that's how it's translated in the Septuagint. Okay? But in the Hebrew, the literal translation of this phrase is, I will be that which I will be. Okay? He says, say this to the people, I will be has sent me to you. And the commentary on, on this aspect of God saying, I will be that which I will be, is that he, will say, he was saying, I will be with you in this time of trouble, and I will be with you in the times of trouble to come. And from that, there's a pause because he says, I will be that which I will be. And then the scripture says, and he said, and I know we've mentioned this a few times as we've gone through various portions, there was no need to put the and in here, except to highlight that perhaps there was a pause and a discussion that we weren't privy to that took place. And the sages say that what took place is Moses said, Lord, how can you say to a people who are in deep oppression and suffering, how can you say, I'll be with you in this affliction, in, in this affliction and in the afflictions to come? Isn't this affliction enough? Whereby God says, yes, this affliction is enough. Tell them, I will be with you in this affliction has sent me, right? So God's saying, I'm with you. I'm with you, Moses, who I'm sending as a deliverer. And children of Israel, I'm with you in your affliction. I have known your sufferings, and I'm going to bring you out of them. So he says, so God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Hashem, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Hashem, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so God is telling Moses to relay that this God who will be that which he will be and that will be with you in your afflictions, and that is Hashem, the one who was, who is, and who will be, is coming to be your deliverer. Now, we, we looked at this 
in the past uh, with the name of God, yod heh vav -Hey, the holy name of God. And his name within it contains the meanings of he was, he is, and he will be. It comes from the root word hayah, which is to be, which even asher ehyeh comes from. Okay, so if you were to take this top word that you see and add an aleph at the beginning of it, that would be ehyeh. Okay, so all these names are very much connected. But there's a statement of God was, he is, and he will be. And if you take those three and you overlay them, like if, you, if, this, was an, if this were an addition problem and you took the letter to the far right, the yod, and carry it down. There you have it. Then there's the hay. And then the vav overlays all the, the yods in the third spot, followed by the hay at the end. You get yod hay vav hay. So within his name is a statement of who he is. He's unchanging. You know, unlike us who are changing and being transformed into what God has called us to be, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't have to change because he's perfect. If there were any requirement for him to change, it would imply that he were not perfect because he would be seeking a greater level of perfection. But he was, he is, and he will be is a statement that should give us great comfort because he has been one who is faithful to his promise. He is faithful to his promise, and he will be faithful to his promise. And, he, and his name, yod heh vav -Hey, is associated with his compassion and his mercy. The, the name Elohim is one that is com usually connected with the aspect of judgment. But Hashem is connected with him moving in compassion and mercy. I know that, uh, I believe it's in next week's portion where he says that he was not known, he had not been known previously as Hashem but he had been known as El Shaddai, the All-Sufficient One. Yet his name, yod vav had been known prior to this time. But, but the children of Israel were going to see him move in an, an entirely new dimension and bring forth his promises of compassion and mercy when he was bringing them out from under these burdens. And he was saying that I will be with you and you will know me by my name, my character, my nature. Okay, so Moses continues to object to the call to go and be the deliverer because he does not see himself being capable, right? So God gives him signs to give to the children of Israel that will affirm him as one sent by God. And then in Exodus 4, verse 10, Moses continues to object, and he said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Right? So again, God's continuing to affirm him and say, It doesn't matter what limitations you see. What matters is what I say of you. What matters is what I place in you. 
That is what equips you and determines your success. It's not what you see or what you perceive. It's what I perceive. And so Moses disagrees again. You know, he stuck with it. And he said, please, my Lord, send through whomever, whomever you will send. And the Lord was a little upset with him. But in the end, Moses agreed to go with the help of his brother Aaron. And, and he sent on a mission. Now, you know, um, I'm going to wrap up here pretty soon. But one of the things that was pointed out uh, by Rabbi Foreman's team this week was a connection between the sending of Moses to be a deliverer, or sending of Moses to his brothers is connected with the story of Jacob sending Joseph to check on his brothers. And we're not going to go into great detail in this. I just found it interesting because there's two deliverers being sent both at different parts of, in time of the deliverance that's coming. But one of the connections that is made between these two that kind of puts antennas up of the connection is in the language that is used to send Moses. So in Exodus 3.10, in Exodus 3.10, God says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of, children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, when he said, come, I will send you, he didn't, that's a translation that seems to make more sense, and so that's what is placed before us, was come, I will send you. But the, the Hebrew that's used is go, I will send you. It kind of seems to be backwards out of order. Wouldn't you think, I'm going to send you, now go. But he says, go. I will send you. Well, the go I will send you is the exact construction that is used when Jacob tells Joseph to go and check on his brothers. Back in Genesis 37, 13, when Israel said to Joseph, are, you, are your brothers not pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. Now, you know, here we have go, I will send you. And you think, well, that may not be very unique, yet those are the only two times in the Torah that this construction is used. And it's both at the time of sending a brother who would be a deliverer to go and check on the brothers. And then there's multiple other connections and parallels between the two stories and how they lay out, such that God was wanting to make this connection for us to see and say, hang on, the sending of Moses is in some way related to the sending of Joseph. Joseph was sent on a dangerous mission to check on the welfare of his brothers, and ultimately it led to the exile to Egypt. Moses was sent on a dangerous mission to check on his brothers, which ultimately led to the redemption of those brothers from Egypt. Right? So in both cases, you have a different aspect of ascending and a result, but one is undoing the other. Both Joseph and Moses being deliverers in different ways. So it's fascinating. So Moses goes 
to the children of Israel in Exodus 4. He performs the signs before them, and they believe. And they say, yes, the God of our fathers is coming to bring us deliverance. And they, they fall on their faces and they worship God. They bowed their heads and they prostrated themselves before, before the Lord. And, and then Moses goes to Pharaoh. At this point, he's feeling pretty good, right? Everything's happening as God said. He went out and he met his brother in the wilderness. He's come to the, to the elders of, the, of his brothers and they've accepted him. And now he goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, the Lord says, let us go for a three days journey and worship the Lord. And Pharaoh says, I do not know your God. And not only does he say, I do not know your God and won't let them go, but then he doubles the labors and the burdens on the children of Israel such that they are, such that their affliction is amplified and magnified. And in Exodus 5, 19 through 21, the foremen of the children of Israel saw their brothers in distress when they said, do not reduce your bricks, the daily matter each day. And they encountered Moses and Aaron standing opposite them as they left Pharaoh's presence. And they said to them, may the Lord, judge, may the Lord look upon you and judge, for you have made our very scent abhorrent in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of his servants to place a sword in their hands to murder us. So now it's not so much going the way that Moses thought it would go. Things have taken a turn. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, My Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why have you sent me? From the time I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he did evil to this people, but you did not rescue your people. If you were to try to place yourself in Moses' position, wow, that's a tough spot to be in, right? Because from what I think is that he had a, he had a knowledge of his calling from an early age, that he would be a deliverer. He saw it dashed, and then he saw it renewed as God speaks to him from a bush that does not burn where he's standing on holy ground and God's giving him revelation, giving him signs and wonders to perform. Everything's happening according to the word of the Lord. And now he comes up against Pharaoh, the one he, who, by all natural means, he, he has no standing or influence with. And he presents the word that the Lord gave him to, to give, and it's rejected. And not only is it rejected now, he probably feels as though he has heaped burdens and affliction on his brothers. And he sees it in their face and he hears it in their words. And he says, God, why? Why is it going this way? And God's response in Exodus 6, in the, in the next verse, the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I shall do to Pharaoh, for through a strong hand will he send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them from his land. But he says, Now you will see what I shall do to Pharaoh. 
And next week, when we read the portion, we'll see that God renews the call for Moses to go back and to speak to Pharaoh. But God says it's not over. God says it's not over, even though it doesn't look like things have gone to plan, even though things are getting worse. You know, one of the, one of the things is that God uses, I, I think that God used the additional afflictions to speed up the redemption. Okay, because as Egypt increased the burden and the affliction on the children of Israel, the more the cup of judgment was being filled up on the nation of Egypt, such that God would be able to move in, in greater levels of mercy and compassion for his children. But you know, um, this week as I was getting ready to uh, talk today about our semi-annual update, I was going back to last year's notes on our semi-annual update, which was 10 months ago. If you're good at math, you'll know that's not semi-annual. But, you know, that was 10 months ago, okay? But I, I went back and, and I kind of said, okay, well, what do we talk about then? And the first thing I saw, like when it came into the financial part of it, was the aspect of God's provision and expectation and then the note of when God gives the vision, he gives the provision, you know? And, and when I saw it, my heart sunk, okay? And I didn't want to read that. I didn't want to read it because things haven't exactly gone to plan, right? Um, this past year, there's been a lot that's taken place, a lot of challenges, a lot of difficulties, whether it's within Emmaus Road, whether it's within individual families, uh, just a whole different kind of thing. There's been a lot of challenges and affliction. And, and within, you know, uh, like when we set out last year, we're thinking, okay, well, you know what, we feel like God's going to open up the door for us to have a, a building. Um, we've got just, you know, just kind of all these different thoughts and views Right? And here we are, we're still in the building. And not only did we not get a building, but uh, we actually ran a substantial deficit last year. It's like, well, that's not how it's supposed to go. You know? Um, and that's the first time we've ever run a deficit. Right? And so it's like, this isn't how it's supposed to go. We set out and we're like, you know, God gives a vision, He gives the provision, right? And so I didn't want to read it. And I'm like, okay, let me, let me delete that. That's not going to be in this, week, in this year's thing. And I go out and I'm getting in my car and the Lord's like, is, is, that, is that how you think? You know, is, is it really the, you know, the challenge and that you're not seeing it happen right now? Is that, is that what frames your viewpoint? Is that what framed Moses' viewpoint? You know, and it's like you talk about faith, you talk about belief, and that even through the trial, God's with us. He's like, how do you know this isn't a test to see how are you going to respond? And it's like, gut check, right? And the reality is that when we're in the midst of trial or difficulty, when things aren't going the way we 
expect, it's easy for us to just focus on the lack or how things aren't working or how is this going to work out instead of saying, wait a minute, what did God say? He said, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you in the affliction. I will be with you in the plenty. I will be with you in the lack. I will carry you through and I will make you able to do that which I have called you to do. It doesn't matter if you're the daughter of Pharaoh. It doesn't matter if you're a shepherd in Midian, no longer in a place of status, in exile. He said, I'm the one who created your mouth. I will place the words in you. I'm the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I will provide for you. Are you going to look to me and stop walking in who you were and start walking in who I've called you to be? That's the call he has for each and every one of us. As he says, you're not who you were. And you're not to stay who you are. I've called you to higher things. He said to Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. Abraham was not perfect. But God said, walk before me and be perfect. Be holy for I am holy. Because he said, you have a greater call. But for you to reach that call, you have to go. And I will send you. And as you go, I'll be with you and I'll transform you. I will equip you and I will make you prosper. But you've got to look to me. You've got to trust me and you have to walk with me every step of the way. And that's really what Yeshua said too when he's getting ready to leave his disciples. Right in Matthew 28, Yeshua says, Go and immerse all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Make, you know, making disciples of all nations. He said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? I am with you always. In the Septuagint, you know how we talked about it, it says, I am that I am. It says, ego, Amy. I probably just totally ruined that as far as translation goes, or pronunciation goes. But he says, that, that's what's used in the Septuagint instead of ehie, asher, ehie says, I am that I am. And so when Yeshua says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, I don't think that he was saying, I am with you always. He says, I will be with you to the end of the age. I think he's calling back to saying, look, the promises stand. Yes, you are just men and disciples and you want me to be with you, but I'm going away. I'm going to send the Spirit and the Spirit is going to enable you to go and do. And I am with you to help you go and accomplish this high and lofty calling. So we can take comfort in knowing that the one who is unchanging and perfect, the one who has always been and will always be, is with us to bring us to the place of who he has called us to be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness, your love. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for your relentless pursuit of us. We thank you, Lord, that you can be trusted in all things and that we can look to you and keep our eyes on you. Thank you, Lord, that you are a great deliverer and there is nothing impossible for you. I ask you, Lord, to encounter each of us 
as we walk out our daily lives, as we walk out your calling for us, your purposes and your plans for us in our families, in our businesses, in our relationships. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us, build our faith, and help us to walk in confidence of your promises. We give you praise and thanks this morning in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.